This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. and Buiti Binafi. <laughs> this is episode 122, and we thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes. <gasps> nope. And no. And oh, there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294, and we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnote Notes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today, we're talking about Lorenzo Fain, an African American serial killer and necrophile. Ooh, we haven't had a necrophile in a while. It's been a bit. Hello. (laughs) Rhyme alert. (laughs) We haven't had a necrophile in a while. But before we get into it, how you doing? I'm doing good. Keeping busy. Uh, don't have much to report. Okay. How okay. you doing? Um, I'm doing very well. Uh, the end of the school year is approaching. When in Arizona, we get out of school in the middle of May, and other places get out in June. June. So, yeah. Um, we're we're uh yeah uh getting ready for uh summer 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 time. Yeah. Well, you got <laughs> and- a pool now. We do. We got that above ground pool, y'all. Just been chilling, kicking it in it. And uh, yeah, I just, I have we mentioned that we're going to Crime Con? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm just really, really excited about that. Yeah, uh, me too. I'm super excited. And yeah, uh, the schedule yeah. came out. Yeah. So we know, you know, kind of who's speaking. Nancy Grace is going to be there. <laughs> uh, so if you want to go watch that, I'll sit at the booth. <laughs> 
Um, but you know, the lots of cool, lots of cool speakers. I'm excited. So, yeah, 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 me too. It'll be good times, and we can't wait to see you there. Yeah, we uh, hope you guys show up. We'll be we, waiting for you. We will be, and don't forget to use that promo code. Yeah, Do you have a promo code Fruit Loops. Fruit Loops. Yeah, ten percent off. Uh, so now uh, we are going to get into some listener letters. Well, hello, angels. Hello there. Thank you. Oh, thank you. So what's in that bag, Beth? Well, I just wanted to say thanks to goats. There's two O's. Oh. <laughs> or maybe it's guats. Hmm. I wonder which. Don't know. But uh, thank you for your five-star review. Yeah. They said they don't like the hip-hop air horn. So Uh-oh. we'll just try to turn them down a little bit for you. Yeah, or warn. we'll warn you. Here come the air horns. How about just this one time? Yeah. Here you go. The, the air horns are, are they're coming. They're, they're coming. coming. So warning. <laughs> so thank you, goats or goats, whatever your name is. Yeah, go- <laughs> we are so grateful Go-ats. for you. <laughs> thank you for the review. Lovely, yeah, lovely. What's thank next? Thank you, uh, Hadina. One of our patrons wrote in to say, in regards to our episode on Philip Anyancha, they said, uh, just so you know. There's a difference between Satanism and quote unquote devil worship that oh. is quite vast. Oh, really? Devil worshipers are more cult like okay. and do worship the devil, whereas Satanists don't actually worship anything. Ah. To further complicate the matter, there is a difference between the Church of Satan, started by Anton LaVey, and the Satanic Temple, which is the mainstream sat- Satanic Church in the U.S. And I didn't know that. I thought the satanic temple was connected with the church of Satan. I didn't know they were two different things. Me neither. Look at this. Look at our fruities. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Okay. What's the, what else? The satanic temple has done some amazing things in the U.S., including helping fight racial discrimination in the 70s and 80s. I'm wow. not a member of the satanic temple, but I did a huge amount of research on it for a fictional crime book I wrote, including interviewing members. <gasps> the point being, devil worshippers usually do really horrible things. Think of cults that molest children in the name of Satan and whatnot, while members of the Satanic Temple do not. And in the U.S., we fail to make the distinction, which is ludicrous. Yeah, <laughs> ludicrous indeed. Okay, b- before I comment, this is for you, Hadina. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, wow. I just feel like I just sat through a whole masterclass on this subject. <laughs> I'm so grateful. Also, wow, I didn't realize they did work to help people. And I didn't realize that there was, you know, uh, the Satanic Temple and the Church of Satan. I didn't know any of these things. Yeah. And we got an author in our as a patron like a real legitimate a real legit writer yeah holy smokes very Girl, you gotta, cool Hadina, you gotta shout out your your book to us um yeah. because we would love to put you on give you your shine and support you um because yeah. that's pretty fucking dope that is very dope now we got some new patrons and uh they are rebecca and Laurie. Um, hello, Rebecca hel- and Laurie. Hello, Rebecca and Laurie. Here are your tunes, and I hope you don't hate <laughs> them. We got a new patron, Rebecca. I said, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> we just love true crime, and Rebecca thinks we fine. <laughs> we got a new patron, Rebecca. Yeah, boo, go, go. Oh! <laughs> 
did it. Good one. Okay. Okay. And then Laurie, this is for you. Laurie is our newest patron. Yes, yeah, she is. She's a magic patron. Somewhere in that ancient mystic trinity, we got Laurie. She's a magic patron. <laughs> Do you recognize that? I don't. Three is a magic number. Come on, fool. Three, three is a magic number. Three. Oh, it's a magic number. Yeah, it is. It's a magic I don't, number. Don't know that one. Um, do you have something against Schoolhouse Rock? You never listened to it on or watched it on oh, Saturday mornings? Oh, okay. Schoolhouse Rock. I just don't remember that one. Whoa. Okay. Well, uh, I hope it's not lost on all of you. And thank you. Well, that was pretty. Anyway. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, thank you guys for supporting our show. We are going to take a quick break and get into the story when we come back. Yeah. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, undereating, and overeating. Okay, so the copy here says to talk about my experience with stress. Oh boy, <laughs> do you have an hour? Uh, where do I begin? <laughs> Work, bills, life, family. I could go podcast. on for a very, yeah, <laughs> podcast, a very long time. And I actually do though in therapy, which is so helpful for me so I can manage, deal and get through it. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways and in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less and grind all the time. Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your 
more stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash fruit. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. All right, guys, it's it's time for me to come clean. It's okay. it's time for me to tell the truth. Right. It's time for me to spill the beans. Okay. It's time <laughs> to fess up. It's time to keep it a buck. Keep it 100. Are you going to get to it? Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. So sometimes after dark, I sneak away and play Best Fiends. Others may wonder about my mysterious disappearances. They say, who does she think she is? David Blaine? David Copperfield? I say none of the above. In fact, I'm having so much fun playing Best Fiends. Ever heard? of it? Why, yes, I have. <laughs> I love Best Fiends. I love collecting the little monsters when you play so I can level up my fiends. Also, I love going in for the super long matches to free up the board and beat levels. Ooh. I am happy to report that I am on level 440. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, friend, I see you flexing over there. <laughs> now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting new levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. I am on on level 304. Beth, tell them about the offline play. Yes, of course. <laughs> there is offline play, so you don't even need Wi-Fi or the internet. Oh, good. So download your new favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. And we're back. Remind us who our subject is today, Beth. Today we're talking about Lorenzo Fain, who between 1989 and 1993 murdered a woman and five children in the states of Wisconsin and Illinois. Oh, right. Well, now we're going to get into some stats. Hello, stats. <laughs> Hello, stats. Hey, uh... So, Fane was born on April 2nd, 1971 in Milwaukee, and I think that means he was an Aries, and... Um, yeah, I think so. I think, you know what, don't fact check me on this, but I think most serial killers are Aries. Anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he was born in Milwaukee, <laughs> and he moved to St. Louis later in life. His crimes took place from 1989 and 1993. He was a serial killer, rapist, and necrophiliac, and his M.O., he, um, he was impulsive. He was opportunistic. He was disorganized. Disorganized. Uh, he was disorganized. Uh, he beat. He strangled. He stra stabbed. He strabbed. Stabbed. Oh my god! I'm too excited to talk. Get to the necrophilia part. Sorry. Um, he strangled. He stabbed. He raped victims prior to killing them, and he had sex with their corpses after. Uh, he was apprehended in July of 1993, and he's currently in Menard Correctional Facility in Chester, Illinois. Uh, he was first sentenced to death, but then was, uh, that was commuted to life, and uh, rest his victims, he's got six uh, victims, one woman and five children, rest in power, y'all. Um, Ari Hunt was six years old. Fallon Flood was nine years old. Glenda Jones, 17. Faith Davis, also 17. Latondra Dean was 14. And Rita Scott was 32. Now, Fane is also suspected of killing Nicole Willis, who was 16, but he denies it. Um, whoever denied it supplied it. Am I right? Anyway, so now we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, we have two settings for this one, Milwaukee and East St. Louis. Both cities have deep and long histories, which, of course, included the genocide and removal of indigenous peoples. 
Both cities are also part of the Great Migration and as a result have robust and established African-American histories and communities. So let's start with Milwaukee, shall we? It's Wisconsin's largest city, which is located on Lake Michigan, where the Milwaukee, Menonomi, and Kinnikinnik rivers come together. People lived there for more than 13,000 years prior to European invasion. At that time, Milwaukee was neutral ground shared by several native tribes. The earliest mention of Europeans in the area is a reference to an unnamed fur trapper at Milwaukee in 1762. Between 1835 and 1850, Milwaukee's population grew from a handful of fur traders to more than 20,000 settlers. By 1846, when Milwaukee was incorporated, it actually rivaled Chicago in size and wealth. Wow. Yeah. By about 1910, there were less than 3,000 Black people settled in Wisconsin. By 1930, the Black population had increased to 7,000. World War I attracted some Black people to Milwaukee for jobs, but many industrial jobs were taken by German immigrants who had arrived earlier, and the agricultural jobs just weren't there because most farms were owner-operated. So opportunities for Black folks were limited until World War II, when the lives of Black folks in Milwaukee were slightly improved in terms of job opportunity. Many Black people from the South came to work in Milwaukee's factories, and most stayed to raise their families after the war. The Wisconsin Black population increased almost 600% from 12,000, that's amazing, in 1940 to 75,000 by 1960. And this, we talk about the Great Migration, but it was over the course of many decades. But Black people were like, you know, uh, sending letters to each other like, hey, it's not it's not as bad up here. Come up here. Um, and uh, I don't want people to think that all these black people were fleeing the South and everything in the North was just honky dory, peachy keen. Uh, <laughs> it, first was, of all, it was probably a little better, but <laughs> maybe. Uh, but the North thinks it can get a pass because they didn't have slavery as long. But racism existed in both parts of the country. Right, right. Um. So uh, the uh, 75,000 by 1960, they remained concentrated in a few urban areas due to racing housing covenants and redlining. 90% of black people lived in Milwaukee, Beloit, Madison, Racine and Kenosha. Remember, Kenosha is where the shooting. um, uh, Well, there was protest there uh, in 2020 and Kyle Rittenhouse shot three people. Yeah. Um, Yep. I do remember. Remember that? Not that long ago. (laughs) Not at all. Yeah. By the 1960s, Milwaukee was 15% Black, but most Black residents were clustered in a near-North neighborhood that suffered from unemployment, poverty, and segregation. Local statutes, real estate agents, and lending institutions conspired to keep Black citizens confined to the inner city, and segregated neighborhoods produced segregated schools. Yeah, so next time you you hear somebody say, well, they got all the rights in the world. Why can't they just pull themselves up by the bootstraps? That's why. Systemic (laughs) issues. Uh, Two decades of struggle by Black leaders and allies were eventually able to force city officials to uh, obey federal desegregation laws. But when local codes and practices began to change in 1968, white residents moved out, leaving Milwaukee one of the most segregated cities in America today. Our second setting, East St. Louis, Illinois, lies along the Mississippi River opposite St. Louis in Missouri. We talked about this city in our episodes on Maury Travis and Donald Young, but here's a refresher. 
Hmm. A ferry station was established there around 1797, and in 1818, a village was laid out, originally known as Illinois Town. Race relations in St. Louis during slavery were complex because the city was located in Missouri, which permitted slavery, and Illinois, which technically did not. When Illinois earned statehood in 1818, the U.S. government required that it be a free state. So the state outlawed slavery, but still allowed indentured servitude. Indentured Mm. servitude is a form of, of labor in which a person agrees to work without a salary for a specific number of years for eventual compensation or debt repayment. These contracts were for four to seven years, and a lot of people came to America as indentured servants. They were either prisoners, working off a sentence, or it was the only way they could afford to get to. Now, this this does not apply to black oh, people no, this coming is, to America. Uh, uh, white people. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> However, in Illinois, the first territorial governor, lawyer Ninian Edwards, who was also a slave owner, decided that indentured servitude was a way around the slavery question. Some of the contracts didn't last the traditional four to seven years, but 99 Jesus. So it was basically slavery under another name. Uh, yeah. (laughs) What is that? Ask, uh, it's better to ask forgiveness than for permission. Like, I didn't know I could do that. Uh, my bad. (laughs) 99 years. Get the fuck out of here. So one year after Illinois constitution was created, the state's legislature passed some of the worst black codes in the country. These laws made coming to or living there very difficult for black people. Black people were subject to housing restrictions, curfews, bans on education, and prohibition from testifying in court against white people. Racial segregation was effectively institutionalized in St. Louis throughout its history, affecting the nature of race relations in the city to this day. Yep. Uh, St. Louis in Missouri was a major slave auctioning center during the 1850s, and catching a runaway and returning the person to the South could be prosperous. You could make a lot of money. So uh, William Belford Jr., a notorious Southern Illinoisan, (laughs) that sounds, he's so annoying, Uh, Southern (laughs) Illinoisan, made a living as a slave hunter. By the way, this is where policing comes from. So um, look it up. Uh, It was a family business. The Belfords earned as much as $300 for one runaway. That's a lot. Uh, Yeah. Back then in the 1850s. Back then, that is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Free black people were prey too. Those who lived in Southern Illinois, especially children, were constantly under threat of kidnapping. In 1824, Governor Edward Coles called for anti-kidnapping laws and the legislature complied, but the laws weren't really enforced. Of course not. (laughs) Some kidnappers were so bold in Southern Illinois that they would ride up to the cabins of free black families and just forcibly carry the children away. Oh, my God. Um, In the 1850s, about one person in 20 living in St. Louis was black, two thirds of whom were enslaved. From 1865 to 1877, the government took steps to mandate racial equality during what is called Reconstruction. Um, But the end of Reconstruction in 1877 gave rise to the Ku Klux Klan in the southern United States, the implementation of Jim Crow laws and unchecked violence and racial terrorism against black people. 
In the early 1900s, immigration to St. Louis increased as southern rural black people came looking for factory jobs in the growing industrial centers. This happened again during World War II, attracted by wartime production jobs such as those in the local small arms plant. The black population increased to 41 percent during the war. Would you believe it? They wanted to come and get good jobs and earn good wages. Yeah, that's crazy. (laughs) Uh, So in well, this year, 1916 um, is is a pretty bloody year throughout the United States because of race issues and black people seeking employment. Um, But during World War One, during World War One. Right. um, And black people are not black people. I think when I say white people, I don't mean all white people. But at the time, um, there was this fear and there's we still do it today. Fox News. The immigrants are coming to take your jobs take your away. Jobs. Yeah. yeah. And they that's what they would do with black people. And the fear what the fear is, I in general, it's like a zero sum game. If if you get something, that must mean I must be losing something. And white people just were not having it. <laughs> um, and it led to violence. So in 1916, during the Jim Crow era, St. Louis passed a residential segregation ordinance, which stated that if 75 percent of the residents in the neighborhood were of a certain race, no one from a different race was allowed to move into the neighborhood. This ordinance did not stand when it was challenged in court by the NAACP. But in response, racial covenants on housing were introduced. These prevented the sale of houses in certain neighborhoods to, quote, persons not of Caucasian race, unquote. Mm. The racial covenants were also overturned when they were ruled to be unconstitutional. But the covenants had already caused the Del Mar Divide, which refers to Del Mar Boulevard as a socioeconomic and racial dividing line in St. Louis, Missouri. The quality of life is vastly different for the white people on one side of the divide and black people on the other side. Even life expectancies are different. For right, the black right. people and the white people on one side. Um, because racism can kill you. <laughs> black don't crack, at least not on the outside, but it definitely does on the inside. Uh-huh. Anyway, East St. Louis headed into decline towards the end of the 20th century. Beginning in the 1960s, industrial suburbs across the United States experienced deindustrialization, the process of industrial decline through disinvestment, relocation, or both. Black residents who had few resources and face discrimination in both job and housing markets were especially affected. In addition to deindustrialization, East St. Louis also experienced white flight, which dramatically increased as millions of Black Americans from the rural South moved to the urban North as part of the second Great Migration. Three-fifths of the city's residents were white in 1950, but they now, today, constitute only a tiny fraction of the population. The city was about 98% Black. Wow. That's a lot. That is a lot of Black people. Um, East St. Louis, that's home of Nellie and the St. Lunatics. Um, Can't think of anybody else famous who's Black from East St. Louis, but you catch my drift. Anyway, the population of East St. Louis declined by more than three-fifths between 1950 and 2000. And as businesses left and the local government struggled, the tax base shrunk. As the tax base shrunk, local government struggled even more. The city eventually had to eliminate all but very basic city services. And then, even then, those were cut. It's a little bit better these days, but not by much.
On the morning of August 1, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. Ready for your starring role in a thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes, danger, and romance. That's right. It's June's Journey, and you play June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries. Ooh, you'll put your powers of observation to the test. Sharpen your sleuthing skills, find objects, and claim rewards. The visuals are fire. It's like a party for your eyeballs. (laughs) As you play this thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes with danger and romance in full force. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. It really is a sweet escape. I like to play when I need a mental pick-me-up. There is a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. So now we're going to get into Lorenzo Fain's early life. What do you got, Beth? Lorenzo Fain was born on April 2nd, 1971 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the oldest in a family of five brothers and sisters. His mother was Juanita Fain-Smith. She had Lorenzo when she was 18 years old. At the time, she was struggling with drug and alcohol abuse problems. She drank heavily and took drugs throughout her presidency, (laughs) pregnancy with Lorenzo. Oh, my God. (laughs) Joe Biden. (laughs) Throughout her presidency. Wow. Okay. Uh, um, Oh, my gosh. Um, So Lorenzo's father left after he was born and he had no contact with him. His father was a Vietnam War vet who suffered from PTSD. And he was later found in a Veterans Administration mental hospital diagnosed with schizophrenia. One source said that Lorenzo's mother worked as a dancer, but Fain himself said that she was a sex worker. He also said that his childhood was, quote, fucked up, unquote, and violent. 
To discipline him, his mother would beat him severely in the head. She would beat him with anything within reach, including broom handles and extension cords. Whew, uh, that is a lot. She believed that this was the way to punish a child. And it was not until after a child care agency intervened and specifically told her that this was an improper means of discipline that she realized that anything was wrong with it. And welcome to Culture Corner. <laughs> we have <laughs> talked about in past episodes um, how the Black church play, plays a pivotal role in Black life, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the Bible says something like spare the rod, spoil the child. And it sounds like um, to me hearing how she disciplined, because to be honest with you, this is, it's not like I, what I'm saying is I've seen and experienced beatings with objects that your parents yeah. can grab. And um, these kinds of behaviors are learned, right? Um, so I think there's a cultural aspect to her disciplining that I think um, we should try to understand. Um, and like I said, it wasn't unusual to have your ass beat with a belt, extension cord, shoes, what uh, you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever you can, hairbrush, yeah. grab a switch from Wooden the backyard. Yeah. yeah. But, um, uh, you know, we discussed the great migration and part of being a parent of a black child in America. And this speaks more to Lorenzo's mom is hyper vision, hyper. You have to be hyper vigilant to keep your child safe and alive. Cause if your child does something wrong, he could be killed right. or arrested. Um, and so, um, you know, his parents and his grandparents may have been partially motivated as, as a means of survival. Right. That's where the discipline came in. Right. Yeah. So, you know, the danger is, well, I don't want my kid to become the next Emmett Till. So, yeah, uh. legit. When Lorenzo was four, his mother remarried. His stepfather was also an abusive alcoholic who often beat Fane. At one point, Fane's stepfather choked the boy until he went unconscious. Lorenzo and his siblings would roam the streets of Milwaukee while their mother was unavailable due to her addiction. Mm -hmm. The children often resorted to begging for food and stealing. And according to Fane, in an interview, he said when he was six, his mother was raped in front of him and he took a hammer and struck the man in the head and killed him. And, uh, I thought I, that's what I heard him say. And he said that his mother took the blame for it, but she was not charged. Um, he also briefly described a, a story where his mother threw him out of the window. Um, <laughs> but I have we have not been able to verify these claims. Yeah, that's just what he said. Yeah. In 1978, at the age of only seven, Lorenzo was sexually assaulted by an older neighbor boy. His mom and stepfather saw him bleeding. It's hard to say what one would do in a situation like that, but it definitely would not be the following. According to Fane, his stepfather took him to the attic, stripped him naked, tied him to a pole, and then beat him for allowing himself to be raped. Yeah, so a, a lot of a lot of a lot of trauma, um, Lots of trauma for yeah. for young Fane. His ACE score, adverse childhood experience score, would be through. It's probably through the roof, and <laughs> he's barely roof, yeah. seven at this yeah. point in the story. <laughs> uh, so Lorenzo had a very close relationship with his maternal grandmother, Miss Nellie Willis. He would escape to her home, not too far away in Milwaukee, where he had access to some semblance of normalcy. She would comfort him when he cried. Uh, take him in and get him to school the next day. Eventually, though, his grandmother moved to East St. Louis. 
Fain later told a psychiatrist that he had his first consensual sexual experience at the age of nine and his first homosexual experience at the age of 11. At the age of 13, he was placed in a group home or juvenile detention facility. Potato, potato. (laughs) He was diagnosed as hyperactive and was prescribed Ritalin. And um, speaking of him being diagnosed as hyperactive, now we say he, he might be on the neurodivergent spectrum, spectrum right? When right. we know but we know better, we do better. And um, that disorder is diagnosed very late for um, BIPOC kids. Usually white kids get these diagnoses when they're, you know, in preschool. Much earlier. Yeah. Much earlier. And intervention is... Um, uh, more available um, and uh, not necessarily the case for Fane or other black and brown kids who were like him at the time. Um, Fane had been in and out of legal custody from the age of 13 for such things as shoplifting, grabbing at women, stealing cars, breaking into homes and abusing animals. In his teen years, he spent a lot of time on the streets, often skipping school and failing academically eventually dropping out of school altogether. Fain said that during this time, he started peeping into people's homes and watching while he masturbated. Mm. Mm. Between 1984 and 1989, he was arrested several times for robbery, burglary, assault, and auto theft, spending several years in juvenile prisons, where he was also physically and sexually assaulted by fellow inmates. During his incarceration, an IQ test determined his IQ to be between 68 and 75 points, qualifying him as borderline intellectually disabled. In 1989, when Lorenzo was 18 and after he was released from prison, he began drifting between Milwaukee and his grandmother's home in East St. Louis. According to Fane, he has five sons. So now we're going to mosey on into the timeline. On July 13th, 1989, two six-year-old boys, Ari Hunt and his cousin, were playing outside their homes in the Parkside neighborhood of East St. Louis when Fane approached them and asked them if they wanted to make some money. Ari said that he did, and he went with the man to nearby Frank Holton State Park. He never returned. Later that evening, the cousin who did not go with Fane and Ari told his relatives about the encounter. A police search ensued. About 2 a.m. the next day, police found Ari's body in the park. Ari had been viciously beaten, his head smashed against the concrete underpass, Mm. and the killer had sex with his lifeless body. A bloody thumbprint had been found on Ari's body. State police canvassed the neighborhood, taking fingerprints from everyone who lived there. But Fane, whose grandmother's house was in the neighborhood, had gone back to Milwaukee, so his prints were not taken. Two months later, on September 15, 1989, Rita D. Scott was murdered in Milwaukee. Her partially clothed body was found in a pool of blood near a loading dock. Her head had been smashed in with chunks of concrete, and she had been sexually assaulted. Scott had three boys, ages 11, 5, and 11 months. Fane later told investigators that he sneaked up to Scott and bashed her head with a rock with such force that the rock broke in two. He then dragged her body through a gangway between a factory and a house and continued to beat her with the chunk of rock he still had in his hand. Then he had sex with her once she was dead. 
On October 4th, 1989, the body of Nicole Willis, 16, was found in a vacant lot. She was on her way home from the bus stop after returning from Sequoia High School, where she was an honor roll student. Nicole had been beaten on the head, raped, and mutilated. An aside, Fane denies he killed Nicole, and detectives weren't able to prove that he killed her, but her body was found one block from where six-year-old Ari had been abducted three months prior. Early in 1990, Fane was in Milwaukee. He stole a car and went to prison for it for 19 months. After his release in 1992, he returned to East St. Louis. With his return to the area, the killings resumed. On March 20th, 1992, LaTondra Dean was raped and stabbed to death. You see, he's changing his M.O. According to police, she was a runaway. On the day that she was murdered, she had been playing cards with a group of people, where Fane had also been present, and he was one of the last people to see her alive. Police suspected Fane had something to do with her death, so he was questioned, but released, because police could not link him to the murder. Later, Fane told a court psychiatrist that he had followed LaTondra home. She was staying with a friend at the time, and she let him in. They listened to music for a while, and then he went into the kitchen to get a drink. And he noticed a knife, which he then used to force LaTondra into a bedroom. There, he raped her and then stabbed her more than 20 times. She died of her wounds, which were mainly to the chest and her abdomen. He then dragged her to the bathtub to wash her lifeless nude body, probably to remove evidence, and then left her there in the bathtub. In July of 1992, nine-year-old Fallon Flood was murdered. Her mother became worried when she didn't return home from a summer lunch program in East St. Louis High School, and her mother went to look for her. At the time, Fane was working as a janitor at the school. Fallon was playing with another little girl when a man approached them. The man, who was Fane, told Fallon to follow him. The other little girl was able to give authorities a description of the man who approached them. A gym teacher found Fallon's body in a locker room hanging from a belt, which was around her neck, and her underwear around her ankles. Fane had attempted to rape the little girl, but was interrupted and abandoned his plan and the body. The city of St. Louis was shooketh, and there was intense pressure put on the police department to solve the case after the murder of Fallon Flood. A reward of $5,500 was offered to find the killer. Fane was questioned about Fallon's murder uh, because he was a janitor at the school. Makes sense. Yeah, but he was not a main suspect. There was another suspect, a teenager named Charles King, who also worked as a janitor at the school. King's IQ was 57. I think you know what's going to happen next. (laughs) Yep, yep. He fit the description of the suspect and was arrested. He was questioned for several days. Um... He's a teenager. And with a low IQ. Yes. And police took advantage of King and he ultimately signed a confession. Um, And I think a lot of people are like, think, well, why would you confess to something that you didn't do? Because you want it to be over. Yeah, it happens Um, all the time. More and more we're realizing. Yeah. Yeah. How fucked this whole system is. Um, So King had no idea what was happening around him. Uh, He asked the jailers when his coloring books would arrive at the county jail. That's so sad. I know. It's heartbreaking. Fane returned to Milwaukee while an innocent man sat in jail for his crimes. King was not released for an entire year when uh, Fane was finally arrested. So he probably lost his job. His, you know, you can't work. Then you don't have a place to live. Like his his life was fucked up after that. So, yeah. 
Police and residents of Parkside did not connect Fane to the murders. According to police, Parkside was not a tight neighborhood. There was a lot of drug activity and transients. One resident of Parkside, Ernestine Slaughter, said that she knew children in the neighborhood had been murdered, but she believed they were isolated incidents. She said, quote, I didn't think somebody was targeting kids, unquote. On June 25, 1993, Fane, who had just returned from Milwaukee, saw 17-year-old Glenda Jones, the daughter of that neighbor, Ernestine Slaughter, as she was taking a shortcut across a field behind Martin Luther King Jr. High School. Fane later claimed that he first approached Glenda holding a knife, but then she consented to have sex with him. Now, <laughs> yep, that uh, did not happen. Uh, uh, so he even claimed that she discussed starting a relationship <laughs> with him. Oh, geez. Yeah, uh, you're coming at me with a knife. Hey, let's go on a let's, date. Let's be friends. Let's just yeah. go skipping through the tulips. This is so romantic. Seems a likely story. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, he's woo. That's not how you woo. That's not how you woo, no. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Fane said something snapped in him and he ended up stabbing her and Glenda Jones died as a result of the stab wounds. Fane then had sex with her body. Glenda's body was badly decomposed when it was found. She was clothed, but her bra was turned inside out, which I think they usually suspect that somebody else dressed the body if uh, the clothes are like inside out and stuff. Oh. Okay, come through, OG of true crime. Wait a minute, I got something for you, Beth. Wow. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. I hadn't even thought of that. So on July 24th, 1993, Fane was robbing the home of Annette Davis with some accomplices. As he passed items through the window, Annette's 17-year-old daughter, Faith, confronted Fane with a knife. Fane grabbed the knife, took it from her, and stabbed her repeatedly. His accomplices fled the scene in terror. But not Fane. Instead, he sexually assaulted oh, Faith's God. dead body. Then he decided <sighs> to set the house on fire in an attempt to destroy evidence. This guy's gross. <laughs> I'm telling you, um, he's right where he needs to be. Yeah. Uh, a little foreshadowing there. Actually, we already said that in the beginning. So don't worry. He gets what's coming to him. Firefighters were called to the burning home. After the fire was put out, Faith Davis's nude body was found face down, bent over a coffee table with her knees on the floor. She had several stab wounds in her upper chest and back. The crime scene indicated that she died in one area and then was dragged over to the coffee table where she'd been sexually assaulted. So he dragged her body and positioned it the way that yeah. he wanted. Mm -hmm. um, he did this after those guys ran away from the house after he stabbed her. And then he stayed to rape her body. It's nuts. It is absolutely, completely defies logic and reason and humanity. Yeah. Um, and uh, I just wonder who those friends were. But it sounds like they were like, this is too much. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm out of here. Yeah. I didn't sign up for no, this. No, I, I wanted a stereo. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't want a murder. <laughs> I didn't want a murder charge. Yeah. Um. So where are we? So at the crime scene, at the crime scene, detectives noticed a trail of blood that led to the back of the house. Police dogs followed the trail, which led to the home of Lee Fane, Lorenzo Fane's auntie. Auntie Fane told police her nephew had gone to the hospital for a cut on his hand. But when police arrived at the hospital, they did not find anyone admitted with the name Fane. 
police talked to paramedics who reported that they'd picked up an Adam Smith. <laughs> Ex- uh, what now? Adam Adam Smith was the guy they picked up. <laughs> oh, <laughs> not Lorenzo Fain. It was huh. a- my name's Adam Smith. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I just that is such a uh, th- I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it's, that's a white name. Yeah, I, it I'm does sorry. sound white. And it's, it's like so generic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we picked up a guy named Mr. Generic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's so he's so uh yeah, it just this guy I I feel like especially after listening to interviews with him, he believed he was slick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he wasn't. But he really yeah. wasn't. Yeah. Okay, so these paramedics picked up Adam Smith from Auntie Fane's house. Okay. <laughs> and took him to the hospital for a cut he received from a, quote, broken mirror. Huh. Okay. Police figured out that Fane used a fake name and okay. they arrested him at his grandmother's home that day. Mm. Finally, Fane was in custody. However, police still didn't realize that he was a serial killer. However, However. uh, (laughs) now we are going to get into the investigation and the arrest. Now, after the police talked to the witnesses, Fane was arrested and brought to the East St. Louis Police Department for questioning. The Illinois State Police were were called in to assist in the investigation. Ultimately, Fane confessed not only to the murder of Davis, but also to the murders of four other victims. In confessions to police, Fane said that he first killed someone because he wondered what it would be like to break someone's neck. What? And during his confession to killing Ari, Fane told police he wanted to, quote, hear the sound of a neck breaking, unquote. So watch a movie, a Steven yeah. Seagal movie or a Sylvester Stallone movie. Were these or, around during that or time? Or go, go break a stick or something. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. You know what, though? I did I did go to a chiropractor once, and uh, I was like, I said, hey, um, can you uh, can you really kill somebody by, uh, you know, snapping their neck? <laughs> and he said is- no. Oh. Uh, boy, huh. was I disappointed. Yeah, because anyway. Hollywood says <laughs> yes. Exactly. It's very possible and it looks pretty easy. Doesn't it though? Yeah. He did say, and this is not this is not good because some of his victims were children. He said you probably could do it to a child or an uh-huh. infant. But uh generally, no, that doesn't work. So um bubbles bursted. Huh? I hear the know. I hear bubbles bursting everywhere. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Uh so uh Fane has also admitted to killing Faith Davis. 17, Glenda Jones, 17, Fallon Flood, 9, and Latondra Dean, 14. Autopsies determined Fane sexually assaulted the girls after killing them. So now we're going to talk about the trial. Hit it, Beth. The first of the five murder cases to be prosecuted was that of six-year-old Uri Hunt. Fane's defense attorney contended that Fane was insane, and his behavior was the result of suffering brutality as a child while growing up in Milwaukee. He also said that Fane was mentally disabled with a low IQ. They also described, and by the way, culture corner, IQ tests are racist. Yeah. Um, they are, exa- the the standard, is, like the, the pool of people who, of 
what they're basing these numbers on are all white. Yeah. Um, and it just doesn't make any sense to use this as a qualifier for every single person when not everybody has the same experience background um, right. as I as as a as white person. So IQ tests are racist. But anyway, Fane's IQ was low. And they also described his abusive childhood, including a rape at a juvenile center when he was 10 years old and a home riddled with alcohol and drug abuse. But the trial's final prosecution witness was a psychiatrist who testified that Fane's personality was abnormal. Duh. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. <laughs> but that he suffered no delusions or inability to control his behavior and could not be considered mentally ill as defined by Illinois law. Fane, who was 23 years old, so not fully cooked yet yeah. at the time of the trial, was found guilty and the state sought the death penalty. A sentencing hearing was conducted in August 1994. At the hearing, the state introduced evidence concerning each of the four remaining murders with which Fane was charged. In addition to Ari Hunt, Fane's victims were identified as Fallon Flood, Glenda Jones, Faith Davis, and Latondra Dean. At the conclusion of the sentencing hearing, 11 jurors wanted Fane executed, but one woman would not agree and refused to deliberate further. Illinois law requires unanimity for the death penalty, so Fane was sentenced to life in prison. A second trial in the murders of the four girls was conducted in 2001. Fane's defense attorney contended that because evidence from all five murders was used against Lorenzo Fane in the first trial, trying him again violated the Constitution's prohibition against against double jeopardy. But the judge wasn't having it, and the trial went forward. Fane was found guilty after three hours of deliberations. And on November 15, 2001, the jury recommended that Lorenzo Fane be put to death for the slayings of the four girls. Fane, who was 30, showed no emotion as the verdict was read. The following year, as a result from numerous miscarriages of justice, the governor of Illinois, George Ryan, imposed a moratorium on capital punishment, commuting all prisoners' sentences to life imprisonment. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, Fane is currently in an Illinois state prison. He hasn't seen or heard from his five sons since he's been locked up. He has done lots of interviews. He likes to talk. And he said that if he could get out of prison for one day, he would go and ask the victim's families for forgiveness. Sure you would. <laughs> well, <laughs> I... I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, call me crazy, but Lorenzo, I don't believe you. (laughs) (laughs) Rita Scott's murder, uh, the woman that was killed in Milwaukee, Mm. that murder he did not confess to, and it went unsolved for 20 years. But in May of 2009, a routine search of a national DNA databank of convicted felons linked Fane to the death of Scott. My jaw's on the floor. That's exciting. <laughs> yeah, DNA does it again. Yeah. That's for you, DNA. <laughs> her family never gave up hope that her killer would be found. And per her mother, Mazella Scott, we were very happy and relieved now that my daughter can sleep in peace. Fane told investigators he didn't remember the exact date he killed Scott, but that he did remember killing her. According to the complaint, he stated he regrets committing this homicide as well as the other homicides and that he is glad he is locked up because he would still be doing it if he were not. Well, I don't doubt it. Yeah. Uh, That statement, I do believe. 
the part about trying to go and ask for forgiveness. Yeah. No, 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 no. Not, not sure this, I believe but that But this one. right here, yeah, I believe this. Yep. Gloria Flood Fallon's mom couldn't shake the image of her daughter being led to her death down a hallway into a locker room. That would, I can't even imagine. Yeah. That would same. be so hard. Mm -hmm. She keeps a picture of Fallon with a shy smile and a bright floral dress and her arm around her brother. The East St. Louis School District made a settlement with her over her daughter's murder for a confidential amount. Ari Hunt's mother, Desi uh, Wingham, left the Parkside area after her son was killed. She didn't realize Fane lived just a few blocks away from her. Ms. Wingham has unfortunately lost all three of her children to violence, and she visits Ari's grave twice a year. That's sad. Yeah. Most of the relatives of Fane's victims who were interviewed wanted Fane to be put to death. During one of the trials, Latondra Dean's mother, Mary Dean, said, If Fane gets the death penalty, I would like to be the one who pulls the court, ending his life. Do not blame you, ma'am. Um, regarding the city of East St. Louis itself, the folks there are still being impacted by the institutional racism and white supremacy we discussed at the top of the episode. Um, and I just wanted to say, if you wanted to learn more about the impact of racism and class in St. Louis, specifically in the Midwest, uh, we recommend a podcast called We Live Here. Um, and St. Louis elected a black mayor. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to get into our takes and what we think made Lorenzo snap. Uh, I'm going to uh, give you all a few minutes to get your serial killer bingo cards out because <laughs> uh, his childhood trauma uh, included physical and sexual abuse, violence, uh, beatings by those who were supposed to love and protect him. Uh, his upbringing was horrifying. I'm talking trauma with a capital T. Yeah. Uh, and um, it started from the womb, really. I mean, uh, his his mother was, I believe, drinking and using while she was pregnant with him. Right. right? And fetal alcohol syndrome. We've all heard about it, what that does to the development of a, of, of, a, of a baby inside the womb and how it um, hinders brain development. Right. Um, and uh, then on top of that, to add insult to injury, he got all those beatings to his head. Um, his mother throwing him out of a window, if that's true, could not have helped. Um, and Fane admitted in an interview while in prison that for him, these murders were all about pleasure and control. Um, he described his in very intense sexual urges. And even during the interview, it was kind of it was creepy because he was describing his crimes and he became aroused sexually aroused sexually yeah. aroused while he was talking about Gross. it yeah and um he he obviously he was impulsive and he had a girlfriend during this time we didn't talk about that oh, I don't think geez. It, but he said he had, he had a girlfriend yeah. while he was doing all this which doesn't um uh you know doesn't have anything to do with rape but um, no, it's just but... interesting he was able to maintain a relationship with another adult right yeah that's unusual for a killer like this yeah yeah and the, the whole necrophilia thing which is um let me look up the definition oh i got it okay I, can you... I looked it up yeah yeah what is it sexual attraction towards or a sexual act involving corpses yeah so he um 
it's interesting because he had an adult relationship with this girlfriend, but required uh, something was driving him to this necrophilia. Right. And I think that that for me is the most fascinating part of this whole story. Yeah. Um, Cause it's the ultimate depiction of control, disregard for human life and just having your way with a lifeless body. Right. And at one point I was under the impression that people who engaged in necrophilia did so for fear of rejection. Um, yeah. But he didn't describe any fear of rejection. It was all about wanting to put the body control, wet, control yeah. them. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was odd that no one noticed that there was a serial killer at work because they were probably because of where the kids came from and who they right. were. Right. And, um, and it doesn't sound like they had a lot of resources. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, one of the kids was uh, went missing going to get free lunch right. uh, at a, at a summer summer lunch program and, right. and and I don't I don't know this for sure cuz I but it I don't think that happens in white neighborhoods. School uh like where where people have food at home and don't need to go to to a school or um, to, to get lunch, uh, yeah, yeah, to get lunch. Um, and uh, the other thing I wanted to say is the intense trauma. Like I said, trauma with a capital T. And I think being black in America, I think it's safe to say he um, was the victim in a long line of generational people who were yeah. traumatized in his in his lineage. Um, but the thing that he missed out on was even though he was a victim of generational trauma, generational healing was never made available to him. Right, so, right. Um, that's all I got. What do you got? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say this story's heartbreaking. Yes, it I is. I feel really bad for the people in East St. Louis, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the whole town. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the whole town got thrown away when uh, the white people left. Yes, right? Yeah. And I also feel sorry for the little boy that mm-hmm. was Lorenzo. Yeah. Um, how he was abused and yeah. what a shitty childhood he had. Mm-hmm. And and of course the the children he killed and their families. Absolutely. I don't have sympathy for him now. <laughs> no. Oh no. No. Put, I mean, just when he was a child. Yes. Yeah. Yes. For the person that he was. Right. He could have been. So as I was doing research on this, I, I listened to a podcast. I've shouted it out before. It's um, Psychology in Seattle. Okay. Okay. It's a really good podcast about what? It's about psychology. Hello. <laughs> Get out of here. You mean to tell me. <laughs> Something called psychology is about, is about psychology. psychology. Well, well in, all is... my, in all my life. Jeez. <laughs> that is the weirdest thing. <laughs> Anyway, they were talking about Jeffrey Dahmer and how uh, he probably had an attachment disorder. What's that? I didn't know much about attachment disorder. Okay. And um, so Jeffrey Dahmer also had necrophilia. Oh, okay. Didn't know that. He had sex with dead bodies. Yeah. Okay. 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 (laughs) He also, I think he would also eat parts of the bodies yeah oh so reactive attachment disorder can develop when babies are unable to bond with their caregivers and then they then have difficulty developing any type of emotional attachment so um if left untreated they continue to have problems into adulthood including difficulty regulating their emotions so this guy was impulsive Uh uh-huh 
And he also um, had necrophilia and Dahmer also, like I said, he also had necrophilia Uh and it's basically an inability to have a relationship with a actual person. Really? Um, Yeah. And uh, I was reading about it as well. And it Uh it said that attachment disorders may also be linked to psychopathic traits. Whoa. Hello. Yeah. And a 2018 study found that children with attachment disorders were more likely to exhibit callous and unemotional traits. So they they just can't attach to other people. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. I'd never heard that attachment disorder. Yeah, Um, that was new on me, too. I wonder too if he if if uh the with the attachment disorder thing and Fane and the fact that he was maintaining he had a job and he was able to maintain like a relationship with right. another adult he maybe he is a psychopath I don't yeah. know yeah um I mean it does seem to be that a lot of psychopaths come out of really abusive childhoods so. You are telling uh, me after watching that program I watched on HBO, what was it called? Crazy Not Insane. Crazy uh, Not Insane. Yeah. Boy, oh boy, do I believe it. That listening to some of these ki- serial killers talk about their, their childhood. Oh, my God. Actually, you know what? I think those, remember when all those people were, um, Americans were adopting like Romanian kids? Yeah. Yeah. And they came from orphanages where they were not touched. Yes. They were yes. not hugged. They uh-huh. were not nurtured. They just mm-hmm. like laid in their cribs and cried all day. Yes. And a, it turned out a lot of those kids ended up with reactive attachment disorder. I just remembered that. Really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's really sad. It is. It's not the kid's fault at all. Right. Um. It's uh, something that's done to them. Yeah. So. And if you catch catch it early enough you can they can be treated ah they there is a um help for them yeah but you know if if they don't if they go untreated and they they continue to be abused and stuff then yeah yeah this kind of thing can can develop yeah and you bring up an interesting point point about um help right lorenzo fain had a very 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 fucked up childhood yeah um but a lot of people have really really fucked up childhoods and they don't always end up um killing people killing people and (laughs) yeah and uh committing acts of necrophilia (laughs) exactly exactly so it there is there's there's help for all of this really bad stuff um yeah and it's just unfortunate um it wasn't um didn't work out for him in that way right right oh and uh again unfortunate for his victims as well hello this is gary chachot welcoming you to check out the french history podcast our main show covers the history of france from the first humans until present if you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. 
So now we are going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. So um, I uh, just a few things from the story off the dome, uh, if you will. Um, We have a member of our pod family who um, is really going through it right now. Um, She was uh, uh, grabbed. in her apartment complex. And um, this person who is stalking the apartment complex is, um, you know, uh, slashing tires, being really suspicious, has tried to grab other people. And apparently my understanding is the authorities, like the the complex um, management and security and police are not being, 100% 100% helpful. In fact, they're the being fuck? 0% helpful. Um, so, yeah. So she's been sharing. She's been sort of keeping keeping uh, us updated. So we're glad that she is um, doing all right right now. Um, but she's been sharing some safety p- tips on her IG page. And I've just been like, ooh, that's a good one. Saving it. <laughs> uh, so uh, this is an oldie but goodie. No weapon, no problem. Use your keys or jewelry or bag or tweezers at the bottom of your bag. Use whatever is on your person yeah. if you cannot run away to try to buy you some time. Um, also, on Amazon Prime, you can get a pepper spray keychain real quick for just less than ten dollars. Um, yeah, so and awesome. that is a good. I saw I saw a pepper spray keychain deployed on Instagram this last week. When a racist late white lady tried it, Ooh. and uh, the black lady said, "Not today, <laughs> Satan," and and sprayed. Oh, you're gonna have to send me that video. I want and to sprayed that woman. <laughs> woo, and she was so mad. But I mean, she was calling her the n-word and like getting oh her in her face it was, all, it was all kinds of crazy so Jesus. look yeah that pepper spray comes in handy and um we talked about we talk a lot about mental health right and um lorenzo fain's ancestors his mom his grandparents there's probably a long line of trauma generational right. trauma is real especially for bipoc people yeah and, but so, generational healing can also be real and um i just wanted to shout out the calm app because there are meditations for kids. So um, a lot of people might think, eh, meditation, blah, blah, blah. Um, actually, meditation, I think, is something that has been colonized. But anyway, black and brown people have been doing it for centuries. Um, <laughs> it's just ladies in yoga pants now are telling us that it's the cool, hip thing to do. So anyway, <laughs> med- I think um, just grounding, breathing, uh, are just real quick um uh, download the Calm app. They are not a sponsor, but I have C-A-L-M. done some meditation. C-A-L-M. I've done some okay. um, meditations with my kids. You know, kids, <laughs> the Rona has been a bitch to the kids too. They yeah. fucking hate Rona's guts. Mm. Um, and so we've been um, med- trying to meditate our way through it. So that's all I got as far as tips. Okay, cool. Uh, now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any true crime goodies or any content by or about any marginalized or othered folks um or underrepresented folks so i wanted to shout out a true crime goodie it is a podcast series called camp hell and a wiki have you heard of it <laughs> i haven't 
Oh my fucking God. So the Anawiki Treatment Center, it was used to be a place where you could send emotionally disturbed youth in Georgia. Um, that can't be but good. <laughs> it turns out that it was really a breeding ground for abuse. Oh my gosh. All kinds of abuse. Oh. And it is, uh, if you look up at a wiki, you can't find very much about it on the internet, but this podcast goes so in depth interviewing people who went there, counselors. Um, it is just, just, it's, it's really good. It's a true crime docuseries on, uh, anywhere you get your podcasts. Okay. Cool. What do you got? Um, well, I just wanted to mention that Hulu has curated a bunch of TV shows and movies for Asian and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Awesome. You know, some of the other streaming services might be doing that too, but I only saw it on Hulu. They are. They are. Oh, they All are. Of, okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. All of them are doing it. All Even right. Spotify. Oh, wow. I didn't yeah. know that either. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Hulu has a lot of really good stuff in there, like Killing Eve, awesome. Nomadland, which was directed by an Asian woman, mm-hmm. Parasite, so and good. a bunch of other stuff I never heard of. So I'm definitely <laughs> going to be taking some dives into that. Awesome. Okay, so just real quick for the listeners, uh, True Crime Goodie, it's uh, called Camp, a podcast called Camp Hell and a Wiki. And um, check out Hulu or uh, Hulu for their uh, Asian and Pacific Islander Heritage Month um, content. Yeah. Well, uh, that's it for today. Where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron through Podbean. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting there's no minimum and no commitment even a dollar would help and as always we have merch for sale on our website that's right oh we got some new exciting merch uh so uh this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every thursday so until next time look alive y'all it's crazy out there The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. 
It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.